It was May of 2009 when I got to go on a retreat. I was a young senior minister, had only been in the pulpit a few months here at Oakwood, and I got to go to Louisville, Kentucky, out into the woods to a campground owned by Southeast Christian Church to meet with a man named Bob Russell, who is our guest speaker for today. Uh, Bob has uh, been doing those mentoring retreats for years, and I got to be a part of that, and I can't tell you how invaluable that was for a young pastor at that time. Uh, Bob has been a good friend and a mentor for many years. Uh, he is uh, from Southeast Christian Church, as I mentioned just a second ago. He, he uh, started at that church many, many years ago. It was running about 120, and when he retired from there in 2006, the church was running just a small little church, about 18,000 people. And so uh, Bob has seen some significant uh, growth and seen some significant work of the Lord through all of his years. He wrote a book called When God Builds a Church. And I know we've offered that on Wednesday nights and, and been through that several times. I know that our elders and deacons and staff have been through that book. And so uh, if that's something that's familiar to you, this is uh, the Southeast story. This is the guy that wrote that book. So uh, let's give a warm Oakwood welcome this morning to Bob Russell. Well, good morning. It is nice to be invited to speak. It's nicer to be invited back. And I have enjoyed this weekend. I spent yesterday with uh, the elders of the church and then the church staff. And I'm impressed you have a really talented, talented staff and some very dedicated elders. And I've always really liked Eric. He is so personable, loves the Lord, loves this church, doing a terrific job. You're blessed to have him as your preacher. And I'm thankful that he invited me back. But I don't know how many times this will happen in the future because I'm getting older. I mentioned the first service that you have to be worried about whether I can remember anything because I'm 74 years old. But I, I, I had an experience last fall that reminded me of how old I am. Just made me feel old. You ever had one of those experiences you're getting older and something happens and you realize, I'm really slipping. I have a grandson lives in Florida and he is more of an academic than he is an athlete, but he decided his freshman year of high school that he wanted to play football. Now he's homeschooled, but in Florida, you can play for your local high school if you want to. But high school football is huge in Florida. And he hadn't come up through the Pop Warner system. He, his local high school was 2,000 kids. He only weighed 140 pounds. And I said to myself, he won't last three days. Well, he went out for football, and he really liked it, and he hung with it. He's at the end of the bench on the JV team first couple of years, but he bulked up a little bit, and I couldn't believe it. This past year, his senior year, he started for this huge high school. He's on their starting team, and they were playing their arch rivals at the end of the season, and I said, I've got to fly down there and see that game. So I flew down 5,000 people at this game. My grandson, Tommy, played the whole game, played well, but at the final horn, the opposing team kicked a field goal and they got beat. Well, they were so dejected, the coach gathered them all at the 20-yard line for his final pep talk. And there must have been 200 fans and parents and grandparents gathered around. And he, the coach said, no, don't get discouraged. We're still in the playoffs. We may play this team again, so keep your head up. Finally, he said, who will have the closing prayer? And my, this is a public school, who will have the closing prayer? And my grandson raised his hand. I mean, I was so touched. I thought, you know, he's not a homeschool nerd after all. He, he, uh, 
He's not a star on the team, but he's a starter, and he's one of the leaders going to have the prayer. And I said, I've got to get a picture of this. Now, my generation, usually very technologically challenged, and it can make us feel old when we don't do things right. I knew I didn't have much time. I took out my phone. I got the app up of camera, and I held it up, and I took a selfie. <laughs> and by the time I got it corrected and ready to take it, the prayer was over. So if you'd like to see a picture of me watching Tommy play football, I'll be glad to share it with you. I hope you'll listen today, even though I'm older, to what I want to talk about. In this hour, I want to talk about the urgency of evangelism in the era in which we live. About twice a year at the church in Louisville, Kentucky, where I pastored, I would teach a class called What We Believe. It was designed for new members to help them understand the basic doctrine of the church. But often people who had not yet become Christian would take that class so that they would best understand. One evening after the class entitled, What is Christianity All About? A college girl came up to me uh, bringing with her a friend. And she said, I want you to meet this girl because I want her to become a Christian the way I did a year ago but she has some questions for you. I said, well, fine. This girl asked me a question about evolution. I tried to answer it. She asked me a question about why there's so many different denominations. I tried to answer that. She asked me a question about why there's so uh, much suffering in the world. I tried to answer that. And finally, I could tell she was asking questions not because she had intellectual challenges. She was asking questions because her heart was still hard, and she was not yet ready to receive the gospel. So I said to her, why don't you read the book, A Case for Christ, by Lee Strobel, and after you've read the book, let's sit down and talk, and she agreed. Then I turned to the college girl who had brought her up to the front, and this girl had tears streaming down her face, and she apologized, said, oh, I'm sorry. I just want her to become a Christian so bad I can taste it. And I was convicted. I couldn't remember the last time I was so concerned about somebody who had not yet become a Christian that I wept over them. What about you? You know, Jesus told all of us, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Do you believe that? When was the last time that you were so concerned for somebody who doesn't know the Lord that you wept over them or prayed over them or even invited them to church? In the book of Romans, the ninth chapter, verses 2 and 3, the apostle Paul wrote, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. The Apostle Paul never graduated beyond evangelism. He, he, he never quit having a burden on his heart for people who did not know Jesus Christ. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 6, 2, he said, In the time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. So I want to talk with you today about our urgency of evangelism in light of a parable that Jesus tells in Luke, the 14th chapter, beginning with verse 16. Now, in this parable, 
Jesus reminds us that the primary purpose of the church, the primary purpose of you as a member of the church is to evangelize the lost. And then it provides some helpful hints about how we can do that. This passage is going to remind us there is a heaven, there is a hell, and there is a hurry. And I believe with all of my heart that hundreds, I mean hundreds of people could be in heaven someday. Hundreds of marriages could be saved. Hundreds of young people could be kept out of the hell holes of this world if just a portion of you will accept the challenge that I'm going to give you at the end of this message. So let's begin reading with Luke 14, verse 16. Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servants to tell those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. Now I'm going to stop there for a second. I find it interesting that the Lord compared the kingdom of God to a banquet. How many of you in this room have ever been in charge of a banquet? Not very many. How many of you, let's put it another way, how many of you have ever fixed a Thanksgiving meal? Well, that's a little different. You know if you're going to have a banquet, there are two essentials. You've got to have good food and you've got to have a good time. I've been to formal banquets where the food was okay, but the atmosphere was so stiff uh, you didn't want to go back. When Christians come together, it should be a banquet. We should have a good time. We enjoy each other's company. It's called in the Bible koinonia, which means the fellowship of the saints. I don't think most people out there in the world have any idea how much fun Christian people have when they come to church. Because their image of a Christian is somebody who's a fun-hating legalist or a rank hypocrite, and they don't want to be involved in the church. And they think of going to church as a boring experience or fulfilling their obligations. But we need to communicate to people that we're inviting them to a joyous supper. David said, I was glad when they said, let's go to the house of the Lord. And one of the characteristics of a great church is that you know how to laugh. Because we mentioned in the sermon the first hour, we have this joy of the promise of heaven that can never be taken away. And regardless of what happens in the White House or Korea or what happens in a school in Texas, we still have this hope. So we're joyous. In Acts 2, we read, the believers broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. You can be very sincere and you can be joyful and glad at the same time. I'm thinking about an occasion in our church when our congregation got to laughing so hard I couldn't get them to stop. It happened on a Sunday night when I slept through a worship service was I supposed to be the preacher. Now, I had a lot of excuses. I, I preached on Sunday morning three times, and I was to preach again Sunday night. And I had a funeral the next day, and I didn't have my sermons finished. So I stayed in my office all Sunday afternoon working on those two sermons. Finally, at 6.15, I, I was finished. And church started at 7 o'clock. And I thought to myself, I am so tired. I, I, I think I'm just going to lie down on my office floor and rest for a few minutes. I'll feel better. And then I laid down and I thought, I'm going to sleep. That's all right. I'll hear the people coming in or my wife or somebody who cares will come in and wake me up. Well, the next thing I knew, I woke up and I thought to myself, I thought this was Sunday. This is Sunday. And I could hear singing in the background. And I thought, what I looked at my watch and said, 7.35. I was supposed to preach at 7.30. So I said, what am I going to do? I raced in the restroom, washed my face, walked confidently into the auditorium like I'd been counseling the mayor or doing something important. 
And the guy who was leading the worship was just dragging the service on, waiting for me to come. And as soon as he saw me walk in, he cut it off, nodded to me. I walked forward, and I didn't know whether it was time for me to make announcements or time to start preaching. And so as I walked by him, I meant to say, where are we in the service? And I said, where am I? <laughs> he said, announcements, announcements. Well, I got up and got behind a pulpit. And you know how it is when you get all fogged up like that? I couldn't think of a single thing going on in church all week long. I stood there and looked at people like, finally I said, folks, I, I got to be honest, I went to sleep in my office. I just woke up. I'm telling you, the place exploded in laughter and they would not stop. My face turned red. The next morning when I came to my office, somebody hung a do not disturb sign on my office door. I opened the door, all my furniture was gone, and there was a cot with a teddy bear sucking his thumb in my office. Now, let me ask you, when our church was laughing like that, or your church laughing like you are right now, do you think that's sacrilegious? Do you think the Heavenly Father up in heaven is frowning, saying it's time for you to get reverent? I don't think so. He is our Heavenly Father. Let me ask you dads. When you hear your children laughing in the next room, does that make you happy or unhappy? You love to hear that sound. What you don't like to hear is when they're bickering and fighting. And when people come together to worship, a healthy church knows how to laugh. It is a joyous banquet. But it takes more than a good time to have a good banquet. You've got to have good food. You better have more than laughter. You better have some good things to eat. The Bible needs to be taught. The Bible is called milk and bread and honey for the soul and meat for the soul. Jesus said, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And so when you come to church, we offer the Bible, the teachings of the scripture that feeds our soul. You see, you as a church have at least three things to offer the world out there they can't get anyplace else. The hope of eternal life, the forgiveness of their sins, and a meaning for every day. I've got a friend who's a preacher named Bob Jones. He said when he was a teenage boy, he saw a big tent in a field. It was a, a circus tent, and he said he, he, he wanted to go to the circus, but he didn't have any money. So he went up to the side of the tent, and he sneaked under the flap and got inside. He said it was one of the biggest disappointments of his life. It wasn't a circus. It was a revival meeting. <laughs> but he said, I'll tell you a, a bigger disappointment than that. And that is to go to church, expecting to be revived and discover that it's a circus. I've been to church. There's laughter and frivolity and dancing, but there's nothing of substance. And I come away empty. You know, if the death, the suicide of Robin Williams, the comedian, ought to teach us anything, it's all the laughter all the entertainment, all the wealth, all the fame of this world does not satisfy the hunger that's in the heart. Solomon said, God has set eternity in the heart. But Jesus said, whoever comes to me will never be hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. Now you are blessed as a church to have a preacher who believes and teaches the Bible. And so when you invite people to come to the banquet, they have a joyous time but they're going to hear the gospel. They're going to be taught the word of God. And we can say with the psalmist, come and taste that the Lord is good. 
But in spite of this sumptuous banquet that was prepared, the host was disappointed that the friends began to cancel out at the last minute. You see, in that day, they would send out notice, I'm going to have a big banquet, and they would get an RSVP, okay, I'll be there. And then they would send out a second invitation saying, okay, I'm all ready, come now. But the first guy said in verse 18, I can't come because I've just bought a field and I've got to go see it. I'm too busy. Now, I don't think he bought this field sight unseen. I think this guy was in real estate and he got to go, he's wanted to go survey the field, plot it out so he could resell it, so he could make some money. You have to make hay when the sun shines. This is an activity excuse. And you know what it's like. We're so busy today. There's so many demands on your time. You just don't have time to come to church. You've got overtime on your job and your children's travel team and your fitness exercise and your regular golf game and your elderly parents to take care of and shopping and taxi service for the kids and the lawn to be mowed. There's so much to do. You know, about 50 years ago, a regular church attender was three times out of four a month. Today, a regular church attender is 1.2 a month because we're so busy. Uh, our, our first church building was just a stone's throw from a big high school. And I went and invited the principal of the high school to come to church. And he said, well, Bob, I, I'd like to come. Do you know where I am, however, on Sunday morning when you're over there in church? I'm right here in this office with 2,500 students and 300 and some faculty in administration. This is a 10-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week job. I can't. I'm so busy. Now, we can sympathize with him. Because the life today is lived at such a hectic pace that psychologists rank fatigue and time pressure as the second most frequent cause of depression among adults. We're so busy. And the world scratches its head, you know, when uh, Truett Cathy of Chick-fil-A and David Green of Hobby Lobby close their stores on Sunday and they do as much or more profit than the stores that are open seven days a week. Because the Bible says... Six days you're to labor and do all your work, but the seventh is holy unto God. It's a day of rest and day of worship. We function better when we stop and we worship and we rest one day a week. But there are some people like this man in the parable, just too busy, I can't come. And then the second guy says, I just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. First guy has an activity excuse. This guy in verse 19 has a novelty excuse. You know what it's like when you buy something new. Man, I got a new motorcycle. I've got a new RV, I, I've, I've got a new set of golf clubs, I've got a new boat, I, 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 our, my, team's on a, my son's on a new traveling team, uh, we're, we're going to have to miss several times this summer. Five yoke of oxen, boy that's a significant number. He couldn't wait to see how they performed, which should be hitched up with the other. The church today faces some pretty stiff competition with the world. Used to be the churches would have two-week revival meetings. Everybody come almost every night from the community. But today, we're just so busy, we don't have time for things like that. And, and we got so many technologies and so, so many things electronically. Several weeks ago, I was in church, and I was sitting behind a mother, evidently a single mother, with two kids, one in grade school, one appeared to be almost in middle school. Do you know what those two boys did the entire hour. One had an iPad and the other had an iPhone and they sat there and played video games the entire hour. Now the mother was happy because she didn't have to discipline them and she could pay attention. 
But you know, church is pretty boring when you can play Angry Birds on your, t- on your phone. Who wants to go to church? And we got to be careful that we don't pretend that what happens in the church is the most exciting thing that's going to happen in the world. I hear some preachers trying to say, going to, don't miss this service. It is going to be awesome. Man, the, the choir director is going to come riding down on a motorcycle. The, the preacher's going to repel out of the ceiling. You can't miss this one, boy. It's going to be great. Well, what we do in church is the most important thing, but it's not the most entertaining. And if all you want is entertainment, you're going to be like this guy who said, I, I bought five yoke of oxen, man. I, I, don't, I, I can't make it. I've got some exciting things to do. And then the third guy says, I can't come because, in verse 20, I've just married a wife. Now, that's an excuse I can almost understand. <laughs> How many of you guys, if your wife said, I'm not going, I don't want you to go either, you'd show up? We've all seen a wrong dating relationship or a wrong marriage really become a barrier to participation in the kingdom of God. 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? What fellowship can light have with darkness? Listen to me. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you marry a non-Christian, or if you're a mature believer and you marry a carnal Christian, that is going to be a detriment to your walk with Christ. Somebody said, if you're a child of God and you marry a child of the devil, you're going to have trouble with your father-in-law. <laughs> and so many times people say, well, I'm going to date this person. I know they're not a Christian. Or I'm going to marry this Christian. This person's not a Christian. I'm going to convert them. Charles Swindle once said, when you got on white gloves and you work in the mud, the mud never gets glovey. It's always the other way around. We get dragged down. So Jesus said, don't be unequally yoked together. How many of you are NFL sports fans? Raise your hand, NFL sports fans. Okay, I'm going to give you a sports trivia quiz. See if any of you can answer this question. Who, what NFL football player said the following in 2012. My faith is the basis where my game comes from. I've been very blessed to have the talent to play the game. I think God guides me through every day and he helps me take the right steps. When I step on the field, I always say a prayer and I'm thankful to be able to wake up in the morning and glorify the Lord with what I do in the field. Who do you think said that? How many think Tim Tebow? Wrong. Any other, any other guesses? Peyton Manning? Wrong. I'm going to tell you who said that. Colin Kaepernick. In 2012, Colin Kaepernick had a very positive witness for Jesus Christ. Now, what happened uh, over the years? Now he's silent about his faith and angry about his, his uh, heritage. A lot of rumors fly out there. I'm not his judge, but this we do know. He has a serious dating relationship with an MTV personality who is a Muslim. And I can't help but think that that wrong, unequally yoked relationship has tainted his thinking about Christ and his country. I've married a wife, therefore... I don't want anything to do with Christ anymore. Jesus said, you seek first the kingdom of God 
And then all these things will be added unto you. But there are some people, well, I can't come. Things are wrong in my family. Well, verse 21, while this shallow excuse is disappointing the host, he gives a commission to his servants. And he says, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame, and make them come in so that my house will be full. Now, the meaning of this parable is clear. We are the servants. We are challenged to recruit with a sense of urgency. It is God's will that his house be full. I, I, your, your house here has more people in it than I was here last time. That's good. But I'll still see some empty seats. And I'm going to tell you what. As long as there's one person in a 15-mile radius of this church who doesn't know Jesus Christ, you can't be satisfied to see these empty seats. It is God's will that his house be full. In Acts, the 16th chapter, verse 5, we read, The churches were strengthened in the faith, and they grew daily in numbers. And the church exists to edify those who are saved, but also to continue to evangelize the lost. And I'm going to be real honest and frank with most of you. I don't think we're doing a very good job at this. I think we've lost our urgency of evangelism. How many of you have been a Christian for six years or more? I want you to see your hands raised. Okay. You got your hand up? I want to talk to you just a second. There's a professor at Hope International University in California who has, uh, has done a survey of evangelism. He got his uh, doctorate at Fuller Seminary nearby where he teaches at uh, Hope International. He did a survey asking how people came to church. And he discovered that with all our talk about attractional versus missional churches, still well over half of people who come to know Christ come to know Christ simply because somebody invited them to come to church. They came to church, they kind of liked it, they came back, they kept coming back, they heard the gospel, eventually the hearts were solved, they gave, came forward, gave their life to Christ, became a Christian. But here's the interesting part of his survey. He asked people, who invited you to come to church? Over 30% were invited by somebody who had been a Christian for a year or less. And then the percentages declined. And here's the amazing statistic. Fewer than 2% of people who are invited to come to church are invited by somebody who has been a Christian for six years or more. The longer we're a Christian, the less passionate we are about evangelism. Now, we can excuse that and say, well, the new Christian has more non-church friends. The new Christian has more enthusiasm. The new Christian hasn't been rebuffed like we are. But here's what happens to us. The longer we're Christian, the more we're comfortable with other people who believe the way we do. And so we learn to spiritually isolate ourselves. We circulate and we rub shoulders with people in school or in a job at a ball game. But we never bring up spiritual matters because we're uncomfortable talking about issues that could make other people uh, ill at ease. And evangelism is kind of prickly. So we learn to not evangelize and we just kind of filter back into our friendships in the church. And the world goes to hell. So I want to challenge you. And I hope that just, if I could get 25% of you to accept three challenges I'm going to give you, I'm telling you, this church would explode. And dozens of people would be one to Christ. Here's the, the first challenge. I want you to become an aggressive inviter. Some of you, I dare say, have not so much 
shed a tear for somebody. You haven't so much as invited somebody to come to church in years. I want you to change that right now. I'm going to challenge you. I want you to make a promise this morning that you will invite one person to church every week. Just make an invitation. That means you've got to be more aggressive. We had a guy in our church just died about six months ago at 92. His name was Cecil McGee. And Cecil McGee, been a Christian since he's 10 years old, but he was the most aggressive evangelist I've ever been around. I, I went to lunch with Cecil several times, and he carried this card in his wallet that, that it says, if you meet me and forget me, you've lost nothing, but if you meet Jesus and forget him, you've lost everything. So the waiter comes over to our table, asks for a drink order, and Cecil hands him a card and says, I want you to read this card and tell me what you think about it. The waiter comes back with the drink order and says, did you read the card? What did you think about it? Did you go to church anywhere? Did you ever read your Bible? I move over to the next table. I don't want to be associated with him. <laughs> and you think, boy, I couldn't be that aggressive. But Cecil, in his obnoxious, aggressive evangelism, has brought more people to church than I have in my passivity. Maybe you can't be that aggressive, but let me give you, an, let me give you a challenge. You go out to eat maybe at the same restaurant once in a while. You leave a 50% tip about three or four times in a row. And then you say to your waiter, you know, you've served me several times. I want to invite you to come to Oakland Church. I guarantee you he will listen to you or she will listen. You might be broke, but you, you'll have more influence to that person because you have become a more aggressive evangelist. We've got guys in St. Louis, Missouri who love to grill out. And they get a big grill, they put it on the back of a pickup truck, they go to a local park where they're having little league ball games on Saturday, they grill hot dogs and hamburgers, people come away from the ball game hungry, they smell, they say, how much are the hamburgers, how much are the hot dogs? They say, yeah, they're for free, they're, they're from Harvester Christian Church, we just want to invite you to come to church. You find some way to invite one person a week, the Bible says, you make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Here's the second part of the challenge. I want you to invite somebody who is different than you. Somebody nobody else is inviting. I'm not saying you go to your neighbor who goes to the Baptist church, say, you come to my church, I'll come to yours. That's what I'm talking about. In the previous, in the previous paragraph in Luke 14, Jesus said, now when you give a luncheon or a dinner, you give a banquet, don't invite your friends, your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they'll invite you back and you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they can't repay you, you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now, we tend to invite people like us, people we're comfortable with. But the Lord wants people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation in his kingdom. And I guarantee you, there are people out there in a radius of 15 miles of this church who are struggling with addictions, experiencing a broken marriage, broken hearts, sickly bodies, and they desperately need hope. They're wealthy people. Nobody pays any attention to because they're intimidated. Invite those people to come to church with you. Invite somebody different. And he says, you will be blessed. You ever come to church and say, I, I'm just not getting much out of church anymore. Maybe I ought to go someplace else. If you want to see your spirits lifted in church, you invite somebody to come with you and they sit beside you and all of a sudden your spirits are lifted. Jesus says here, 
go in verse 23, go out in the streets, alleys of the town, and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. And the servant said, what you ordered has been done. There's still room. And the master told his servants, go out the roads and the country lanes, make them come in so my house will be full. My wife became a Christian when she was 10. And that's probably 25, 26 years ago. And... Uh, but she has become a more aggressive evangelist as she's got older. We were visiting my son who preaches in Florida. We checked out of the hotel and we got in the car. She said, oh, I forgot to invite the clerk at the desk to, to come to church. So she went back in and invited the clerk at the desk to come to church. But she gets a manicure every week from a girl who immigrated to America from Russia. This girl still has a little bit, quite a bit of a Russian accent. But Judy, my wife, has slowly befriended this girl. They struck up a conversation as she's doing her nails. And she eventually invited her to come to our church to her Easter pageant. And we met them and took them to the Easter pageant. And then we invited her and her husband to come to our house for uh, um, a meal and they invited us to come to their house for a Russian meal and now my wife is doing a regular Bible study with this girl and she said I know nothing about religion I am I, in, in Russia we don't learn anything I am a whiteboard and Judy is always telling me we, we studied this she, I think she's about ready to become a Christian you can befriend somebody and somebody different than you. I told you about going down to my grandson's football game. I couldn't get over how my son is so involved in the local high school football team. I mean, coaches know his name. He's in the locker room. They ask him to do the devotional. I said, Rusty, how, how, did, how did you get so involved in the football program? He said, Dad, it was easy. I just went to the coach and said, is there any way I can help you? And he gave me a list of things that I could do. And one of them was I discovered that he was laundering all the uniforms himself every Saturday after the game. So he said, we'll take that off your back. And so we pick up after the game. We go in the locker room, pick up all the jerseys and pants, and we take them, bring them to our house, and have them to vestibule fumigates the whole house but three or four <laughs> three or three or four families from the church come and help us out and we launder all the football uniforms every Saturday Monday we take them back he said come on dad help me out so after the football game I went in the locker room and I'm I'm a mega church preacher I'm in there picking up these dirty smelly wet uniforms put them in sacks lugging them to the car and then coming back get the second load and while we're loading the second load the football coach comes by the door and he says Thanks again, Pastor Rusty. See you in church Sunday. And three weeks ago, he emailed me and said, Dad, we baptized four football coaches this weekend. It's amazing the people you can influence if you're willing to wash uniforms or wash feet. I want to challenge you, once a week, you invite somebody but somebody different than you, you become a more aggressive evangelist. Here's the last part of the challenge. Don't get easily discouraged. Be relentless. The first three invitations were rejected, but the servant was told, you keep on inviting. Let's be honest. Some people are not going to respond to our invitation. Let's be real honest. Most people are not going to come when you invite them. The world's pretty hostile to the church these days. Jesus said, many are going to be called, but few are going to be chosen. The apostle Paul was the most persuasive evangelist ever, but we read over and over again, some ridiculed him. Some said, we'll talk to you again, but a few believed. 
a few believe. That's our goal. Anybody in here a salesman? Raise your hand if you're a salesman. Okay, right here. What do you sell? What, what kind of equipment? Farm equipment. Farm equipment. Let, let, uh, I'm not sure it'll work with you because I don't know much about selling farm equipment. <laughs> any, when you try to sell, what's that? You, are you ever told no when you try to sell something? Every day. Every day. If you quit, you're helping me out, thank you. If you quit, <laughs> if you quit, how, how much farm equipment would you sell? What would happen to you? Lose you lose your job. You cannot get discouraged by a no. You got to say, maybe the next guy. I've heard salesmen say they get like nine no's for every one answer yes. Thank you. You helped me. Don't get easily discouraged. Liz Higgs, a popular woman speaker, and she said it takes on the average of 13 invitations for Christ before somebody eventually comes. So if somebody tells you no, don't get discouraged. You're number eight. You know what I mean? Listen, we can talk about everything except what is most important. You can stand in line with a complete stranger and start talking about the best movie you've ever seen. Or you can talk about your favorite restaurant. Have you ever eaten over there? Boy, it's really good. You don't know the person you're talking. Or you, you can talk about your grandchildren. Nobody wants to hear about that. But you don't hesitate to talk about your grandkids. Why can't we, if we really believe what we say we believe, there is a heaven and there is a hell and there is a hurry, why can't we find some way to bring up Jesus Christ? Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me and my words, I'm going to be ashamed of you. But if you'll confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father who is in heaven. So would you accept the challenge? I'm going to make one invitation a week. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to invite somebody different than me, and I'm not going to get easily discouraged and who knows what will happen. I want to close by telling you about the nicest Christmas present I've received in the last decade. Last year, I got an email, and I barely recognized the name from 35, 40 years ago, but they were inviting my wife and me to come to a Christmas brunch. And I looked at the date, and I said, Judy, we don't have anything going on that date. Let's go. And so it 10 o'clock in the morning, we rode up, nice house, and host met us, introduced us to his wife, and uh, then two siblings who were there, and there were 19 kids running around this house, and they were all dressed up, and they were all cousins, and I can tell this was an annual Christmas event, that they were sky high, they were having fun, but Judy and I were the only non-family members there, and I could not figure out why they invited us. Finally said, okay, time to eat. Everybody come in the family room. We got in the family room, and there were two chairs sitting in the middle of everything. And uh, a, a woman stood up and said, Bob, you probably don't remember me, but my name is uh, Carolyn uh, Hoarder, Corder, and, but it was Carolyn Mardis back when I first came to Southeast Christian Church. Maybe you rec recognize that name, and that was the name I remembered. She said, we, you probably wonder why we invited you here. We invited you here because we want to tell you, we want to thank you for preaching the gospel, and we want to tell you about how much difference it's made in our family. You see, I was a teenager, and my mother and dad went through a horrible divorce. My dad got thrown in jail. My life was falling apart, and an older woman in the community, invited me to come to Southeast Christian Church. And I came, 
and I heard you preach the Bible, and Bob, it was like food for a starving soul. And I gave my life to Christ, and when I was baptized, it was like a 10-ton load was off my shoulders. My life suddenly had meaning and purpose. And I want to thank you for preaching the gospel. This is my husband, Barry. Barry is a preacher at a church in Indiana. And these are our seven kids. And we got one more on the way. We just want to thank you for the difference that the gospel made in our life. Then her sister stood up and said, my name is Diane. I was at the University of Kentucky when my younger sister started going to church. She invited me and insisted that I come. But I was living a wild, duplicitous life in college, and I knew it. I came to church, and she said, you preached. And she quoted the verse of Scripture that she first heard me preach on. And she said, I was so convicted. I repented of my sin. I gave my life to Christ. I married Mark Shreve. We spent 10 years of our life in Papua New Guinea translating the Bible in a language where it's never been translated. And these are our six kids and one more on the way. Then the brother stood up and said, I'm the younger brother. My name is Michael. This is my godly wife, Anna. She homeschools our four kids, but I am the dean of students at the University of Louisville, and I try faithfully to take the gospel into a dark academic environment of stuff, but I try to be faithful, and we just want to thank you for preaching the gospel and the difference it made in our lives. Then one by one, these kids who had been old enough to be baptized would stand up and say, my name is Andrew, I was baptized on. My name is John, I was baptized on. My name is Elizabeth, I was baptized on. Every one of these kids had Bible names, except three who had been adopted and they had Bible character. The last one said, my name is Andrew, I am a student at Boyce Bible College, I'm studying to be a preacher. And then they passed around a song sheet. And the whole family sang... To God be the glory, great things he has done. And I couldn't stop the tears because that was the theme song of our church. We sang that every Sunday when they first came. When I got to the car, I looked at my wife and I said, Judy, somebody listened. Somebody heard. But here's my point. All that happened because one middle-aged woman in our church saw a teenage girl who has gone through a broken family and she said, would you come to the feast? Would you come to the church? And now in central Indiana, University of Louisville, Papua New Guinea, the gospel's being spread. I wonder... When I see these empty seats, 10 years from now, 30 years from now, who's going to be sitting there? How many people could be impacted if you just make an invitation and you don't get easily discouraged? You just go out and say, all things are ready. Come to the feast.